Hello, welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers, the podcast where we share stories, insights and strategies that go beyond some of the numbers we encounter in our work life. I'm Susan Lee-Trivon. I work with organisations who put people first. I've lived and worked in many countries. I've met people who love what they do and people who don't. People who bring their full selves to work and people who won't. And together with my guests, we place a lens on and focus in on the people side of work life. Because we know that it is people who do the work, not numbers. And if we are treated well, we will perform well and might even generate better numbers. Today, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by a fellow Irish person, Eamon Fitzgerald. Eamon, you're most welcome to Life Beyond the Numbers. Thanks, Susan. It's great to be here. Cool. So I came across Eamon first when I moved to the UK and we started to buy wines from a company called Naked Wines. And earlier this year, Eamon announced that he was heading for Ireland and going to, to set up alone. And it was as if somebody I knew was leaving, because even though I'd never spoken to Eamon or met him, his emails had encouraged me to connect with winemakers around the world and appreciate wine. I mean, I already appreciate it, don't get me wrong, but in a way that I felt connected to him and producers and a sense of community about something I'm passionate about as well. So I wanted to talk to Eamon about Naked, but also about his new venture. And as I researched this episode, one of the things that stood out most for me, as I said, is this sense of community, this personal connection, which I think is wonderful in the world we live in today, which is often very disconnected. So Eamon, tell us, how do you create that personal connection? So I think wine as a a topic and a product, it it just lends itself perfectly to a community-based business. And if you drink wine, it generally goes hand in hand with good times. It's refreshing on a hot day. It's comforting on on a cold night. It's part of people's holidays, birthdays, weddings, celebrations, all sorts. And it's most importantly, it's it's a product which is generally consumed in a group, whether with friends or family. And I'm very passionate about, yeah, bringing great wine to those social occasions and giving a bit more meaning to that wine. So whether it reminds you of that amazing holiday or honeymoon you had or dinner with your family or, or whatever it is. So it just lends itself perfectly to creating a community. And in our world, it's the customer drinking the wine. It's the the winemaker who's making the wine. And then it's someone like me in between, kind of connecting those two groups together. I guess it's wines that we wouldn't normally find in our supermarkets as well. We're somehow getting connected to wines that we may never have been exposed to. So how have you found these winemakers over the years, Eamon? Yeah, so yeah, I, I spent 10 years in the UK with a company called Naked Wines. I did every job there from the wine buyer up to the, the managing director. So it gave me amazing experience at d- doing everything in, in a fast growing company. 
And down the years, I met some of the world's most talented independent winemakers and became colleagues, friends with those guys. So got great contacts all over the world through that. But I also learned the commercials of making wine. And so how much wine costs to make in every region uh, on earth and how to actually make it great value to the customer. So you've traveled extensively then as well, Eamon. I mean, every continent, I guess, or wine producing area. Yeah, every every place they make wine, I've, I've probably been there. And the, the great thing about traveling in the wine business, they tend to be beautiful places, first of all. The food tends to go hand in hand with the wine. So those experiences are, are special. And also the people. So, you know, when you're with a winemaker in Italy or South Africa, they're so passionate about where they're from, their region or their, their, their part of the world. They're honored that you have traveled such distances to, to visit them. So they want to make sure that you experience the best of you know, those regions. And it's not necessarily the Michelin star restaurant. It's the pokey cafe in the village behind the petrol station that serves up the most amazing pasta imaginable. And I love bringing those experiences and those stories and those wines back to people who actually drink the stuff. And whether they're in Italy next time and they might get to experience the same thing, like experience the place like a local rather than a tourist. Or, you know, quite simply just getting delicious wine into their glass so that they kind of know then, you know, a bit of the story behind what they're drinking. That's what really gets me up in the morning. And was that something you always wanted to do, Eamon? How did you get into the wine industry? Yeah, it's, it's funny. I guess from a young age, not too young, but yeah, I think wine was always something I wanted to get into. And the first time the, the bug bit, I think, was when I was a teenager, my dad would head over to France to do those booze cruises. I don't know if you, you remember them back in when, like, this is late 90s, probably. or Yeah. And yeah, he, he, he'd get their cash together and someone would drive over in a van and collect a load of cheap wine from the, the, the wine warehouses and, and bring them back and have their year's supply of wine. And um, yeah, I was probably just on hand one day and I was appointed unofficial uh, wine buyer for that trip. And got the catalog out and I just started looking up the different vintages and the, the deals and the value and stuff you'd get. And yeah, one of the trips actually he brought me and my brother. So got, got the boat over to, to northern France and did the D-Day beaches and had a, had a beautiful experience just, you know, trip with, with the lads. And we load up the, the Jeep then and, and the trailer full of wine. Yeah, the back seat would be would have like two children shaped wine box holes in them just to so that I could literally fit as every last box possible I swear he looked at one box and got I, I could leave a child behind and bring more wine home no, didn't. But, you know what I mean every every cubic last cubic centimeter was was used a couple of runs up the ramp trying to get on the ship because we were so laden down and yeah then we get home back to Dublin and we'd open the loot and unpack it and so something about picking, you know, pulling those bottles out of each box, looking at the label, looking up these wine books at these, you know, amazing sound places, places like Saint Emilion and Gigandas, and you know, reading up about them and the, all that stuff. Just, I don't know, it just seemed quite magical to me. And I was fifteen or sixteen. I hadn't even drunk a drop yet, but just you know, the the very notion of it yeah, just really uh, appealed to me. So um, yeah, then through uni, then I, I had a, a job, a part-time job in a wine shop. And so yeah, that got me further into it. I did a harvest in the south of France when I was uh, 20. So picked grapes for four or five weeks. That was backbreaking work and um, horrendous, but it definitely gave me a good insight to the toil that goes into to, to making wine. And yeah, then it wasn't until I was three years out of college. I'd been working for Accenture for three and a half years as a management consulting. Great experience, learned lots. But I knew wine was still that passion, what I really wanted to do. 
So I moved uh, to London with, with my girlfriend, now wife, um, Ruth, and became a customer of this company called Naked Wines and got invited to a tasting like with the other customers. At the time, I'd also been writing a wine blog called My Grape Escape. And this was all about trying to get out of the corporate world into wine. And so I'd review like, it wasn't a serious thing, but I'd review the, the wine list at Legs, which is like this awful like late night <laughs> wine bar. Um, you always end up in and no one wanted to admit it. And you swear you'd never do it again. And then, or else like the, the wine list, or the little quarter bottles on the city jet flight on the way home from London on a Friday night, you know, just do stuff like that. And um, yeah, so, so at Naked, I went to this first taste and wrote up a review of the tasting and the wines afterwards. And a guy called Rowan Gormley, who, who founded Naked, saw that blog and he got in touch and we met up for a beer and uh, four months later I was working for him. So that was how I got into wine and it was a fun, fun journey. Amazing. There's so much in there. Any standout trips that you've made or wine producers that were would never have been discovered that you found? Yeah, there's, there's loads down the years. One of my favorite places is probably in Ribera del Duero, which is northern Spain. That's the wine region. You know a couple of great winemakers there. But there's this lamb restaurant in the region in a little village called Lerma. And the restaurant is called Casa Anton. And I've been there a couple of times now. You walk down an unassuming side street and there's a door. You never think it's a restaurant, but you know, you're brought in. The, the place is half empty. It's full of like old fellas there's like flies and just you know checkered tablecloths and you're very down-to-earth place and you go and you sit down and you wait for the menu there's no menu that comes carafe of wine is, is brought out to you with this kind of dark pink local juice from the cooperative and then the the food's brought out so simple green salad crusty white bread and then this lamb is kind of thrown down in front of you and a big sharing place for the group and if there's any vegetarian listeners, maybe hit the fast forward button for 30 seconds or a minute. But this <laughs> lamb is the, it's the lamb capital of Spain, this region, Rivera del Duero. And, and the lamb, it's called lechuz. So it is milk fed, 60 days old, slaughtered the day before you eat it, and then roasted in its own juices for seven or eight hours in, in these clay ovens in the restaurant. And just served up like, like that, melt in the mouth. And then you have the wine on it, the wine's quite rough on its own, but then you sip it along with the lamb and it, everything just falls into place. And you're just in heaven, food and wine heaven. And it's again, one of these experiences that you get knowing the locals and kind of traveling that way. And I, I love telling people about that. I tell people to go visit that place if they wanna, ever want to try the best lamb in Spain, go to Casa Anton uh, in Lerm. Yeah, they're the sort of place, it's a far cry from the, the, the chateaus in Bordeaux and the sports cars in, in Napa Valley and, and all that flash kind of part of the wine business which is no doubt it's amazing as well but that's not my world and that's not many people's world no except it's the world of the supermarkets I guess to an extent Eamon you know it's about numbers isn't it it's it's about what you can ship through margins and so on so what makes what you're doing different yeah so I like to say with my new venture wine spark with wine you get what you pay for and the reality of the wine industry is 80% of wine purchases in the supermarket and consumed within 90 minutes of it of being brought home. The average price point in the UK is about £5.50. So in there, there's about, you know, once you take away duty and taxes and shipping and glass, there's about 20 pence of actual wine in there. And the average bottle of wine you know, served up in the UK. And once you hit £7, you're getting a £1.70 worth of wine. The, the, the increments you get in just increasing the price a little bit. So that's where, you know, the, 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 the majority of the market is at. 
Then there's like a 15% above that, which is the middle players, the majestic wines, naked wines, virgin wines, late weights, all those guys who are battling it out on the e-commerce space. And then there's 5% on the top, which is like super premium high end. So it's like a pyramid, the, the, the way that the market is set up. So naked wines, we were at the, the middle part of that pyramid um, and still are and do knock it out of the park at the seven to 12 pound price point. I always looked at the top of that pyramid to go, right, the best wines out there, they obviously cost the most amount of money. But knowing what I do about the economics of making wine, no wine on this planet, if made correctly, should cost more than about $25 to make. So what I mean by that is if you take Napa Valley in California, it's the most expensive place on earth to make wine. And if you want to buy top class grapes in, in Oakville or somewhere really nice in Napa, it's about $18,000 a ton for the very best grapes that money can buy. That's about $15 in the bottle. And then you got to process it, state-of-the-art winemaking facility. It's about two and a half grand a ton. That's another two bucks on, on the bottle. Oak barrels, you know, no, you know, eight, $900 a barrel. That's another two or three bucks in the bottle. And then your packaging, heavyweight bottle, cork the size of a vibrator, you know, really throw the kitchen sink at it, another two bucks a bottle. So you come out with about $25 with change for the best wine that money can buy. Yes, that wine in certain channels sells for hundreds, if not thousands. So you've got this absolute ceiling on what great wine actually costs to make. But when you want to, as a customer, experience the very best wines to, to actually buy and taste them, they'll cost you several multiples of, of, of that. So with my new venture, WineSpark, I wanted to maybe turn that on its head and go, how can I make these incredible wines accessible and affordable to regular people like, like you and I? But that was really the, the spark for, for how WineSpark got going. The spark, excellent. And for a small wine producer then, Let's take somebody like in northern Spain in the area you're talking about. Are they imagining ever scaling their business or are they just looking for steady income? Yeah, I'd say there's probably two ends of, of the wine market. There's the mass produced, like super cheap, high volume wine produced in, in factories. Basically, it's made to a recipe, tastes the exact same year in, year out. And that heads off to the supermarket. On the other end, you've got the real smaller you know, independent producers. And it sounds idyllic being a winemaker. It's it's a tough life, you know, backbreaking work in fields, a lot of cleaning in the winery. They'll tell you winemaking is 90% cleaning and 10% magic. But the rest of the time and the majority of the time is spent actually trying to sell their wine. And yes, there's a golden rule in the wine world. The best winemakers are the worst salespeople. And and vice versa, if someone turns up in a slick suit with, with their wines and a well-executed sales pitch, you run a mile. This is like, this, this, can't be, this, this can't be right. So yeah, winemakers, they're amazing at making stuff and they're, they're at their happiest in the cellar, in the fields, tending their grapes or their barrels or their, their tanks. Yeah, and, but selling is, is such a big effort for them. And that's where someone like me comes in, where I can taste, I can extract a story from a winemaker and then yeah, connect them in with the people who are actually drinking the stuff and take out all the intermediaries, the agents, the marketers, all that stuff in the middle who add a lot to the cost, but not much to the price and the, and the quality. So yeah, that's it, how the industry works. And it, it's kind of a vicious cycle for the winemaker because they're small, they can't afford to make a lot of wine and then try to sell it. The more they try to sell, the more that adds on to the cost of the wine. Therefore, the wine ends up more expensive on the shelf. 
So it's a vicious cycle that it's hard to get out of and no one really wins. Customers drinking expensive wine, winemakers and selling much. And at the end of the day, people just head back to the supermarket and go, do you know what? I'll, I'll stick with my six six pound Pinot Grigio and away with me. And, and I guess people will also say that they don't taste the difference between the six bottle Pinot Grigio and the 36 bottle Pinot Grigio. You know, that's the other thing. That That's definitely true. And that like 80% of the market who buys at the supermarket wine is just a means to an end of and that's perfect you know that that's it's the drink on a, on a friday night just to cool off after work it's you know it, it's just another drink there is a part of the market that likes cooking good food likes traveling likes good wine and and wine is such a, it's intimidating it's confusing it's hard to get into but once you're in that world it's exciting and it's it's romantic and it's aspirational and yeah it's not for everyone but Anyone who likes those sort of things can, can, can get into wine. You became MD of Naked Wine then, quite quickly as well, and quite young. Yeah, so first job at Naked for the first year, I was the, the wine development manager. So I was traveling all over the world, finding winemakers for our, our very fast growth at the time. After a year, Rowan went off to the US to set up Naked Wines USA over there. And for some reason, he, he picked me to run the company, aged 26 to 27, uh, with no experience of running a team, let alone a, a company. But he must have seen something in me, because uh, I definitely didn't see it myself. And we can talk about Rowan, but one of the great things he always taught me is that you value attitude over experience. And he could have hired someone a lot older and a lot more experienced than me, but if he didn't, I think it worked out well. But it wasn't going so well at the start. So I hadn't a clue what to do, <laughs> which is probably quite normal. You know, it's 35 people, there's 25,000 customers, about 30 million in sales, and suddenly you're supposed to run the thing. And it took a probably one of the most humiliating experiences of my life to really, I don't know, change a gear or so something happened. So I was invited to speak at this marketing festival down in London. And I'm quite introverted, so public speaking like just terrified me. And so I had to get up in front of 500 people to like just talk about naked wines. And uh, I'd done a couple before; they'd gone well. Obviously, terrified before them, but I did, did okay. And I think the biggest mistake I was making in the early days of, of being a managing director was, and I see it lot so many people do it, kind of going into new roles, is you try to be someone else, or you try to be the person who's just maybe vacated that role. So Rowan is this charismatic, entrepreneurial, softly spoken South African, set up three businesses for Richard Branson of Virgin, you know, created Naked, awesome idea, and just such a, such a presence, big shoes to fill. So not having a clue what else to do, it's like, well, I'm just going to try and be Rowan. And um, so I got up in, at this marketing uh, talk in front of 500 people, and I was talking about Naked and the model, and it was all going fine. And then I looked down at the audience, first mistake, and someone in the front row was just looked bored and it threw me and I lost my train of thought. The voice started to go dry and then the voice went and I just froze on stage in front of 500 people and obviously just wanted the stage to, to swallow me up there and then. And yeah, I've kind of recovered it and battled through the last five or six minutes and um, all, all fine in the end. But so I sat down afterwards and I'd had a mare, like I was just sitting there going, this, that was awful. And I was speaking with a guy called Matthew Phelan and he kind of just like, you know, bigging me up and trying to pull me back. 
And he was like, people were loving what you were talking about, especially the winemaker. And I was like, oh, yeah, thanks, whatever. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but as I reflected on that experience, I thought, you know, that, there was something in that. And I, I, I was at my most comfortable talking about the winemakers and their stories rather than the business model and the funding and all that stuff. So I thought, right, next time I'm up on stage, I'm going to talk about the winemakers because people love that bit. And yeah, uh, that's what I should focus on. So I realized I needed to be more not Rome and be more authentically me and really play up what I'm passionate about. And those speeches are a walk in the park when I do that. And it just so happens, as it turns out, being authentically me, me means more sales when it comes to marketing and, and everything. So that was a big lesson I learned early on. It took a very tough learning experience, but that sense of being yourself for all its flaws and all its good things as well. It's that was a huge learning for me early on. Wow. Thank you for sharing that story. And I just I can't imagine <laughs> I can standing up and with 500 people and freezing. But everybody in the audience is probably thinking, thank God that wasn't me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor guy. I think we always want people who are talking to us to to do well. And we're just glad it's not us. And a brilliant lesson, Eamon, and to learn it very early, because I think if you go into a business and you're working your way up, like you say, you're trying to fill the shoes the whole time. And when you get to be yourself, you don't even know who that is any longer. So it's fantastic that you got that. And also, I read something about a book you bought that helped you along the way. Maybe you tell us a little bit about that one. Yeah, this was early days as well. Again, looking for results, didn't really know what I was doing. But I just talked to like reading, going to events, just throwing myself into as many things as possible to, to learn as much as possible. I came across this book called If Disney Ran Your Hospital by this guy called Fred Lee. And he was a hospital consultant in the US in a private hospital. And he wanted to figure out how to improve the patient experience at his hospital in order to you know create better business in the hospital. So he, he did a stint at Disney to learn from Disney how, how they treat their customers and how he could translate that experience to a very different environment, obviously hospital environment, but what, what, what principles he could bring over. He, he noticed one very interesting thing that Disney did, which was every time you finished your, and this is probably in the 80s or 90s, every time you, you had a stay at Disney, you were asked to rate that experience out of five stars. And Disney found through that data over time that the difference between a, a customer that rated that experience four stars versus five stars, the customer was seven times more likely to book again if they had a five-star experience. That was a big light bulb moment for Disney. So they put everything into how to give a five-star experience for their guests rather than a four-star experience. So little things like obviously amazing service, call them out by their name. If the car is driving into the parking lot, they see a sticker for the college on the bumper, they make a comment on that putting things right when things are all, all that stuff to, to make a five-star experience. So I thought that was very interesting. So I, I dug into the, the data at Naked because we also at the time measured our customers on experiences on a one to five scale. And I saw in the data with retention levels twice as good for five-star customers versus four-star customers. However, we paid our agents based on a, a positive experience, which was four and five stars rather than five-star only. So I thought, let, let's give this a shot. The new target, guys, is a five-star experience, not a four and five-star. Here's a few ideas or tactics to, to help you deliver that five-star experience. And within two weeks, the five-star number went from 65% to 85%. 
And you know, suddenly we created you know incredible experiences for our customers, but also incredible culture in the business. And not unlike what we've seen over the last 18 months, where people suddenly appreciate the, the hospital staff and the re- retail frontline workers and stuff, how they're, how they're the real heroes of society. And a bit like in any company, the call center tends to be an afterthought. Whereas when we realized, Christ, look at the value these guys are delivering, they became the heroes of the, of the company because they were suddenly creating value, not just you know, minimizing brand damage through dealing with difficult issues. So the numbers shot up, the culture changed overnight. Naked became known and still is to this day one of the, the best customer service teams in the, in the company. I say customer service, I shouldn't say that because we renamed the team as well customer happiness team because that's their job it's to make customers happy and again this sounds a lot more positive and aspirational and um the guys to this day still do do an amazing job and i'm very proud of, of all of them for for keeping that up that's amazing and you said the culture and the business change so it's spread beyond the, the customer happiness team as well yeah, looking into some data, businesses are a complex beast, but at the end of the day, if you can boil it down to a few simple things, just focus on those things, that, that's always been my recipe. And, you know, again, I was, I was digging into to data one day and I looked into our NPS data, you know, the net promoter score, because I was, I was just wondering, well, what makes our best customers, our highest NPS scores, what, what makes them love the, the business so much? Naked's got a very high NPS score. And I looked into the nines and tens and the two reasons why people loved uh, the business so much was, was were the wine and the service, so that's not surprising. But what did surprise me was it was wine and service in the same amount. So I, I thought the wine would be like way above the service. So simple things like great service on the phone, next day delivery, uh, good website, very simple stuff, not rocket science, but very few people actually get that right. So again, just building the business, building the experiences around amazing wine and amazing service that was the focus that was that that was the goal then then the years and that shines through with the brand this huge you know retention great quality wines amazing culture and attitude from people and then just little things you just throw in to keep that like discipline and and stuff together so i read a great book called um legacy by james kerr it's it's about the all blacks and how they keep an amazing kind of leadership culture going within the rugby team and the, the first passage is amazing. It's, it describes the 2011 World Cup opening game where the All Blacks played Wales. And, you know, the whole comp- country's buzzing. It was down in New Zealand. The, the All Blacks had a great victory. And describe a scene two hours after the match where everyone's out in the pubs partying and fireworks going off. Everyone's celebrating the win. Everyone's gone home from the stadium. But the three team captains are in the changing rooms, cleaning up the changing rooms, tidying up the rubbish and just putting it all away and, and getting it right for the next day. And they're the leaders of that business and they call it sweeping the sheds. And it's like their attitude is if we don't do this, someone else is going to do it. Why should they? We're the leaders of this team. We, we should leave it you know, uh, right for the next day and, and the next person. And little things like that. So the office kitchen, for example, it's a stage in, in every office out there. And we're going to the size where we could afford a cleaner to keep the office uh, kitchen tidy. And I thought, no, do you know what? You know, there, there's leaders in this company. We're all, we, we all show individual leadership at, at, at any point. You know, people will wash up and clean out, um, after themselves rather than we, we pay someone else to, to do that for us. Meetings, every single meeting starts on time. I don't care if the CEO is late for the meeting. The meeting starts one, five, 10 minutes late. 
you've lots of meetings a week, you add all that up, that's a lot of wasted time and disrespect for other people. And two, if you've got a meeting with a customer at two o'clock, you better be on that call at two o'clock for that customer. So you, you set that tone, you set those that discipline, that culture, you know, internally. So I was very picky on that sort of thing down the years, little things like that, but I think they go a long way, a long way and they, they just help. They keep that culture, they keep those disciplines and, and that behavior. Well, you're setting boundaries really, Eamon, aren't you, as well, about what is and isn't acceptable and you're you're communicating them too. So everybody's aware of them. So it's easier then to adhere to them. Yeah, for sure. And that starts from the top. And I, I ain't perfect by any stretch. But you know, no I, look is. The, I, I look at the guy above me, Rowan, who we, we did a big deal with Majestic Wine back in 2015. So they bought us for about 100 million. And it was a huge day. Obviously, we, we had previous owners that they, they, they were struggling and there were, and we'd you know, gone hard in the US as well. So there were some tough times before we, we did that deal. So it was amazing. One of the best uh, days of, of my career, handing out checks to people and with shares and, and all that stuff. But the one of the highlights of, of, of that whole period and that day, I'll never forget it was. So Rowan and the team, they'd be down in London doing the deal overnight, lawyers and everyone. They announced it to, to the stock market at eight o'clock on the Friday morning. We were all up in Norwich getting the comms ready for customers, telling staff when they came in, you know, all those mad stuff from a day like that. And Ron had done his his morning stuff and interviews and, and all that. And he got the train back up to, to Norwich in that afternoon. And what really struck me was he spent that whole time responding to customers on his wall who were going, yeah, congrats, great news. Or I'm really worried this sounds like terrible news. And what does this mean for Naked and my wines and winemakers? And Rowan was all day on his wall responding to customers where he could have been talking to every business analyst or journalist in the country wanted to talk to that day. And I saw that and the whole team saw that and that sort of leadership. And yeah, those experiences stick with you. And that's what I mean by that top down. If you expect people to, to uphold your kind of standards and behaviors, you better do it yourself. And yeah, I took that from him. I, I tried to do it myself as well. And it's not rocket science. Surprisingly, a few people, uh, a lot of people don't get don't get it right. But yeah, it just yeah, upholding those standards is is very important. And you worked at Accenture for a while, Eamon, and that you know I worked in Deloitte, and I don't think that they certainly in the last century when I worked there, but they weren't the qualities of leadership that you were seeing. So also depending on where you spend your early career can shape you and it's back to you saying being yourself as well isn't it and this isn't rocket science but if you think about well the customers are the ones that are keeping us in business and the staff are the ones that are keeping this business running and the suppliers they're all people that's that's what they are so treat them well yeah absolutely yeah totally and so, Eamon, what was the spark then to <laughs> send you back to Ireland and start your own venture? Yes, we moved back to Ireland in 2018 with two small kids in, in Norwich. So we figured it was time to, to, to move back for, for, for family reasons. And I've moved into a, a global wine director role instead of MD to be able to work from for, for Naked for, from Dublin. So I was, tra- I was gone two out of four weeks every month. It was a bit too much, but again, just created loads of uh, great contacts and, and experiences. But then obviously the pandemic hit and that all came to a start and we were all stuck at home with plenty of time, too much time to think about our, our lives and what's next. And I, I've been 
10 years at, uh, at Naked. So I get naturally to maybe start to think about what's the next move here. And yeah, it was May of last year. We were just coming out of the first lockdown and slowly edging out of our houses again and couldn't go very far. So hanging out with neighbours and on our road, a little uh, cul-de-sac where, where we were at the time in, in Dunleary in Dublin, uh, we decided just to do drinks every Friday night with the neighbours. So like kids would be running around and we, we, we pour drinks. And I'd obviously have lots of wine in the house, as you, you can see behind me, and I'd been sent samples all the time. So I was like, guys, why don't I just do a wine tasting? Bring a glass, keep your distance, and I'll pour you some nice wines. So we did that every Friday night. And yeah, I'd be pouring wines for people. I'd be, you know, explaining the difference between the Rioja and the Ribera del Duero. I'd be explaining the winemaker's story. I'd be helping people, you know, find a white wine that they'd love. And it struck me that like, I'm at peak happiness doing this, just sharing great wines with people and telling the stories. And I, so, you know, I thought, right, this, this is what I love doing. It was a good reminder, having been locked up for so long. Also, you know, probably selfishly is back in Ireland and, and kind of didn't see a, a wine supplier out there that could give me the value and the sort of community that I'd like as a consumer of wine. And then finally, this idea of great wine is so expensive, it shouldn't be. Why don't I create a business model that makes these amazing wines suddenly accessible and affordable to, to normal people like me, my neighbors, yourself, everyone else. And I realized that the key to unlocking that value is to connect these amazing winemakers that I know with the passionate wine drinkers that I also know. And creating that spark, uh, that connection is uh, what WineSpark's all about. So it's a simple model. It's a subscription. You pay 10 euros a month. That gives you access to the wine at cost, essentially. So all the taxes and duty and, and delivery included in the bottle, but no margin on the bottle. I make my margin from the monthly fee rather than the, the, the bottle price. And that gives you access. A 30 euro wine in the shop would cost you 17 or 18 at WineSpark. A 50 euro wine in the shop would cost you 25 at WineSpark and so on. So you give people great value in return for that monthly commitment and if there's no tie-ins or minimum terms you can cancel whenever you want but hopefully people won't because i can blow them away with the quality of the wine and the service which is what i i learned at naked as, as the two most important things for customer loyalty so yeah we're we're three and a half months in now we've got about 450 customers and the feedback's been great on the wine and we had our first event a few weeks ago um in dublin and got a few winemakers over so that was amazing to, to just bring it to life. And yeah, I'm, as I say, I'm, I'm having a blast doing what I love doing, which is finding amazing winemakers and bringing their wines here and, and sharing their stories and their wines with, with people. Lovely. And I think that's one thing, you know, we said, I said at the beginning about that personal connection I felt to you, even though I'd never met you. And I think it comes across in your newsletters or your emails that you send, because I always felt like you were writing directly to me. And you was probably going to, I don't know how many customers. That's an amazing thing to be able to do. And But not only that, you made it, I suppose, informative and you talk about the winemakers and the experiences I can have. And I believe you, but it's not salesy or sleazy, if you know what I mean. And I think that's going to be something amazing to bring to the Irish. Yeah, thank you. Let's hope so, for sure. But yeah, it's, it's got to be authentic, right? Back at Naked Wines, we did something with the teams where the, the marketing team and the buying team were, were one entity. So a lot of businesses, you'll have a buying team and a marketing team and the buying team buy and the marketing team sell. 
And the marketing land up generally with what the buying team buy. And there's a lot of friction there and they're not quite often in coordination the way they should be. Whereas at Naked Wines, the buying decisions were made together between the buying team and the marketing team. Therefore, the marketing could get behind what the buyers are buying because they also made that decision to do so. So it's very important to be in be in touch with what the customer wants and, and make those buying decisions together. And yeah, just being authentic, be, being yourself. Yeah, and if I am in Ireland now, I mean, obviously there's people listening around the world in different countries. If you're in the UK or in the US, Naked Wines are in both. But if you're in Ireland, how do I find you? Yeah, so just head over to winespark.com and um, you can pop in your email address there and you'll, you'll go on the email list or you know if, if you want to give it a shot you, you can sign up as a member for for a tenor month and, and get going there i'm also on linkedin i'm on instagram and we've got a, a private facebook group as well for members where we, we talk about all our wines and um, discoveries and with the winemakers as well so so that's a bit of fun that's cool and I, I think that's the thing you know i have the naked app and you can leave a review so one of my favorite wines is the kruger from south africa i just think kruger wines are unbelievable and you can leave a message saying that wine was delicious blah 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 whatever and he will respond to you johan kruger saying yeah. you know, thank you susan and i think that's incredible Johan's a lovely guy and he's so grateful for what, what Naked have done for him and his family and his business, uh, but he more than pays that back in spades through the quality of his wines. And again, the traditional model where if Johan went to sell a wine in a supermarket or you know a, a nice wine shop, there's several people between him and the end consumer of his, of his wine. So we never actually get to talk to that, that, that actual wine drinker, whereas these direct models allow the maker talk directly to the, to the customer. And the best buzz any winemaker would get is hearing that a customer enjoyed the wine. It was part of a special celebration or a nice dinner or had friends over. You know, that's what they do it for. They're, they're expressing part of their world. It's an art form and it's there for, for, for drinking and enjoying. And the other thing with, with Johan, if you're ever in South Africa, he makes these lamb chops in his backyard on his braai, which is the, the South African barbecue grills them over Namibian hardwood, uh, the lambs from Karoo. So it's Karoo lamb, chops of the size of my head. And, um, and you're looking over the, the sunset over, over Cape Town and uh, with a nice bottle of, uh, a nice glass of Kruger um, in tow. Life doesn't get any better than that. It doesn't. And we have a braai here and we have Namibian hardwood. We don't have the view <laughs> or the weather. Um, and Eamon, you know, it is coming up to Christmas time and this is going to go out in November. So what would you recommend people to experiment with coming up to Christmas? Any particular winemakers that you'd really like to profile? Well, I've got an exciting new winemaker I'm about to launch. He's called Federico Serelli. He's from uh, Tuscany in Italy. And Federico used to make Tininello and Salaya at Antonori. These two wines are two of the most famous expensive wines in, in Italy. And uh, Federico has worked for Antonori, he's worked for Treasury down the years. He's never had a chance to actually make wine under his own until now. So I've got him on board for, for WineSpark and he's making three beautiful Tuscan wines exclusively for, for WineSpark customers under his own name. So maybe by the time that this is released, the wines will be on the site. They'll be here in, in you know, any day now. 
And I'm very excited to bring those wines to, to the people of Ireland and give Federico the, the chance to really express himself and show people what he can do. Fine. And Eamon, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. And the connection that you're trying to make or that you are making between people producing and putting their heart and soul into something they do and people who enjoy the drinking and everything in between is amazing and I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you Susan, appreciate it and likewise what what you're doing making people happier at work and that that's absolutely what we should all be be striving to do so yeah right back at you. Brilliant thank you Eamon. Bye now. All the best. Thank you for listening today. And if you enjoyed this episode, please share it with someone you know who would enjoy it too. I believe we are all entitled to enjoy our work and the future of work life will be changed by those who put people first and create more fulfilling work lives for themselves, their colleagues, their teams and organisations. If you have any suggestions for topics you'd like to have covered, guests you'd like to hear from, or questions for me, please drop a line to susan at beyond-thenumbers.com. And finally, please consider leaving a review.